0: Well, the Lord is speaking today. I um, don't know where this is gonna go, but we are gonna press in and seek him. Amen? Praise God. I trust some of you sense the Holy Spirit speaking as well. There's uh, uh, his presence this morning, maybe speaking specifically to someone's life in some way. I've sat through services before and, and not one thing the preacher said did anything I, I'm the kind of person that if I don't write it down, I don't pay attention. I, I let my wa- mind wanders a thousand directions, right? And um, so I got an idea a second, I think. It's, my, it's a bad thing. We started our series last week with the conce- conception of the concept. The whole idea is building life God's way. We want to build and we want our lives to be built on a foundation that is healthy and good, Right? And there are fundamental things that he wants for us to know. And these fundamental things in the building process are under attack in our culture. These things that we're going to address in each one of these things is going to require us to look at a building and how it's constructed and built and recognize that the same way uh, the principles that are used in building are are the same things that God wants to do in our lives. God starts with the foundation. Who is that foundation? Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us he is the cornerstone. And so the concept is something that worked its way, building life God's way. We, we're discovering God's plan really for our life. How many love that, that God understands who we are? <coughs> he understands your gifts and your abilities. He knows what you can do and what you can't. He knows the, the construction and the design of your family But to have a good plan is an important thing for every believer. We have a choice whether we grow in Christ or not. We have a choice. It is up to us to make a decision whether we're going to be a mediocre follower of Jesus or we're going to be a stalwart follower of Jesus. Good plans start with concepts. We talked about the concept. The big idea of it all is that God is good. God is good, great architecture and design are first conceptualized and they're often conceptualized on a napkin in a coffee shop somewhere (coughs) or a diner. And we know that God is good because um, the word of God says he's good. And last week we saw how Moses was talked to by God. God had a conversation with him and God told Moses about his goodness. The the two significant concepts that we um, are Oh, am I on here? Oh, wow, I am on. Ah, wow, I'm on here. Oh, well, this is not on. This is not working. Um, ta-da, it's not working. Yay. There we go. Did that? Was that me? That was me. That's the wrong slideshow. That's <laughs> it. We're on there. There we go. Um, that's okay. We're good to go. Um, the first thing is we can't get closer to God than what our idea or concept of God will allow, right? Um, And the second thing is that I really want us to know, and and this is the big one today, is that we can't get closer to God than God, uh, closer to God than our idea or concept of ourselves will allow. How many look at yourself in the mirror every morning? Actually, I don't. Think about that. You know, I guess to, to comb my hair maybe, but other than that, I don't need to look at that ugly mug. Um, but anyway, in the morning, we, we may look at ourselves in the mirror. When you go to um, look at a picture, a photograph of, some, of a family or something, who do you look at first if you're in the picture? You. How am I looking in that picture? Yeah, I don't really care about everybody else and how they're looking. I care about how I'm looking. So we, uh, understanding who we are, And our concept of God is significant. This is something new we're trying here. There we go. I got it. We can't get closer to God than our concept of who we are will allow. So sometimes we see ourselves in a certain way. But did you know that God sees you oftentimes, every time actually, way different than you see yourself? The revelation of who God is to us reveals to us who we are. And we feel kind of small when that power hits us but we're amazed and overwhelmed by his love and grace. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, and God said, let us make man in our image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. Um, So God created man in whose image? His own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. You know, when we looked last week, we discovered and learned that God is good, but not by our human standards. We have a standard. We think things are good, and we measure by how we react to one another, things that hurt us. If we have something that hurts us, we say, oh, that causes me pain, so I'm not going to do that to somebody else. That's sort of a humanistic way to look at things, but there is a goodness about God. When, When God spoke to Moses and he says, your standard for what is good is not my standard. By comparison, what you think is good, man, I am holy. You are terrible. And that's how we feel. When you read the word of God, it says we're detestable, we're sinful, our sin is like filthy rags, that we're unrighteous, we are unholy. Um, But God says he is merciful. Remember, he gave us this long list last week of these seven things. He is merciful, uh, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in truth. He is forgiving. He is just he tells Moses the one place in all of scripture where God tells us who he is. Ah, What a revelation. He is all of those things. Now God is good and how we view him is, is understanding that our measure of goodness really doesn't matter because the definition of our goodness is made pale in light of how God defines how good he is. How we see ourselves though directly affects our relationship with God. The concepts about who we are can nourish us or put poison into our life. Um, Let me start by saying one of the greatest enemies of this this self-image view is the idea of self-esteem. We have been taught this in school forever. You've got to raise your self-esteem. But that's not true. According to what a Christ follower standard should be, it should be I am in walking in self-acceptance of God's design for my life self-acceptance that he made me the way that I am. As a youth pastor for years, I would have uh, asked kids, especially teenage girls, do you think you're pretty? And none of them would ever say no because their self-image came from self-esteem taught by culture. And I told them, all of them, that they were beautiful. Why? Because God's idea of beauty is different than our idea of beauty Beauty goes skin deep, as my dad would always say, but ugly goes straight to the bone. And isn't that the truth? We want to change our minds about self-image from the overwhelming worldview of self-esteem to accepting God's design, to self-acceptance of God's design for our life. This is different as a believer than it is for the world, way different. It begins by accepting that we have a creator who loves us and that God is good. No matter what we think or how we feel, friends, God is good. Many may struggle with the concept of God because culture all around us, education, politics, all seem to say that God does not exist, or at the very least, if he is a creator, he's really unconcerned to be involved with any of his creation's cares or worries, fears, or troubles. But there are four crucial questions that all people ask. And regarding gaining the right concept of who we are, we're going to ask them. You'll recognize them. How did I get here? What does my life have a purpose? What is, why do I exist? How do I determine what's right and what's wrong? And what happens when I die? I know when you're a young person, you start to contemplate these things, right? We start to think about them, we ask questions, and and they're under heated philosophical debates today. People have built YouTube channels based on these four questions. The whole world is searching for answers to these four questions, these basic things about living life, about who we are and where we come from and what the origins are, some things that are very basic from the time we're children. And I want to tell you today, friends, that that design or that image that we might have in our mind that's been taught to us by culture needs to be torn down in Jesus' name. What happens in our life when we answer these questions wrong since we were little? taught in the classroom. But how we answer them shapes our concept about God and who he is. Because they instill values and beliefs in our life. And if we're not careful, we carry with us them forever. Years ago, I read a book about from a, a psychologist who was not a Christian, who said a couple of things that were very profound. One he said, Sex, the act of sex and sexual relations, and the spirit of a person are so interconnected that they cannot be separated. It's a very spiritual experience because it's physical, it's also spiritual. And also he said something that I thought was profound as he goes through all these statistics, the core value systems, the core beliefs of a person, how you act, how you live, what you believe, um, if you're punctual, if you if you're are developed, those values, those core values in life um, are established firmly by the time you are 10 years old. That is astounding. That's why it's interesting that 85% of people who come to Christ do so before they're 18 years old. Did you know that? Young people come to Christ at a much higher rate because as we get older, we establish these systems of self-esteem that are contrary to self-acceptance of God's design. Because if we don't learn early on about God's design for things, we will swallow everything else. You know, so to answer these questions, I have some things here that, from Scripture that God tells us. First thing, I think we need to realize that we have great value to God. So as creator, he looks at us and we consider that value. Psalm 139.13, you may have known this scripture for many years. It's a beautiful text, isn't it? isn't that something? The days were formed for me, not me for the days, when as yet they were, there were none of them. What a powerful thought. God created all of this for us. He loves us that much. We have great value to him. Jesus said in Matthew 6, in fact, that you and I have great value to him. He knows our needs and he loves us. Scripture says he is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses anybody ever had a weakness how many have been sick lately or maybe a chronic disease or a pain you know that the Bible says he feels for you and with you what a powerful thought of an awesome God that cares so much but the enemy has used culture to try to to remove the great truth of our value your value to God Living according to God's plan is undermined by simply saying that God is not creator God. This is a great contest in our education system today. Understanding God is creator is non-scientific. It's religious. It's fairy tale. It's Santa Claus sliding down a chimney. But hear this, friends. If we feel as though for generations that you have no value we're really not experiencing God at all. If we consider that our value is nothing more than the the sum of the existence of our flesh, then there is no substantial opportunity to know God. But our value begins with understanding that we are of great value to him, that God loves you personally, and that he is a sovereign, omniscient God, and that when he was on the cross dying for your sins, you specifically were on his mind that Daniel, Jesus, was thinking about you when he was on that cross. Jim, Jesus was thinking about you when he was on that cross. Ray, Jesus, was thinking about you when he was on that cross. The very intimate, real, loving, personal God cares for you. So how do we lose this understanding? There's some ways I've experienced as a pastor. I've seen this in people's lives. The first thing is we get hurt, sometimes even by the church. The church hurts us, and so we run from the church. And so by therefore, when when you remove yourself from the fellowship of the family of God, you remove yourself from critiquing and uh, religious experiences that we have together that lead to spiritual ones, where we are interacting with God together and we lose conviction. Secondly, we neglect our relationship with God. When you go into isolation and you pull away, you, you begin to get away with things that nobody can see And thirdly, we lose relationship with God because we may accept that God loves us, but we reject the idea that he created us with value. You have value. Your life is not junk. No matter how old or young, your life has value. And if we believe that we came from monkeys, we value less. When I build something, I made it. I created it. I didn't actually make the wood part. I didn't get the dirt to grow the tree. Actually, I didn't make anything, did I? But if I were to build something in my garage, in my shop, a cabinet or something, because I built it with the materials that I purchased and bought, I would have the rights to use that thing, whatever that it may be. God has created you and he has the rights to your life. Nobody else does. And let me tell you, that's not bondage or slavery. That's good news. Right. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what, God, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse, In other words, all creation exists right now today so that everyone will have no excuse knowing that there's a creator. If they look hard enough at creation, you and I and the entire world, friends, are without excuse. We were made with value. Secondly, you are not a cosmic mistake. You know, the voices of culture say that you came from the primordial ooze, that we were an accident. There's actually one professor, actually more than one, a few, but they're online, they're popular, that we came from stardust. Yeah, yeah, you're a stardust child, don't you know? A meshing of stardust and primordial soup and sunlight that shone through crystalline to make 24 proteins come into the first molecule of our existence. All happened by itself. And from there we were tadpoles, then fish, then lizards, then monkeys, then humans. We're all one big mistake. Just a big mistake. That's all. You are by chance here. Listen to the reasoning that comes with that. If you are an accident, where is your purpose? That's not very ob that's not being very observant of the natural world. That's not following the instructions of Romans chapter 1. That's not looking clearly into creation and saying, what complexity there is in its design. the design that shows order. Things of creativity, that God was creative. You are not an accident. Isaiah 44:2, 2, I am your creator, says God. You were in my care even before you were born. Even before we were born, Albert Einstein even though not a follower of Jesus, oh Proverbs sixteen four, the Lord has made everything for his purpose. Yes. Albert Einstein said God doesn't play dice. <laughs> In other words, he doesn't do things by chance. He is deliberate and intentional. If you believe that you're an accident of nature, life has no purpose. I'm only telling you this because this is the lie that has infiltrated our American culture for more than 150 years. This is the ideas of evolution that has crept in to public education now for a couple of generations, more strongly became prevalent in the early 60s, and now has been taught to kids as what's just the natural order of things, that you were from the primordial soup. And consider a person that considers themselves coming from just a basic accident of evolutionary design. There is no real purpose or hope in this life. Why exist at all? If you believe that you're an accident and life has no purpose and and in the end it has no purpose either. I mean, there is nothing but dirt and worms to consume your body. That's all the reason you exist for. Friends, God says otherwise. He says that you and I and our children and all of those who came before us are not accidents. We are born in the time that we're born in, we're born with the skin color we're born with, we're born with the sex that we're born with. Yes, there are two genders. We're born with the looks that we have, the natural abilities, some of them that we have. We're born with those things that God put in us. There's 10 unchangeables about your life, your parentage, your heritage, your birth order, the color of your skin. um, um, So many things that God has put in you that's unique to you. Your time in history is one of them. You are here right now for a reason. You have a purpose. You are not an accident. God is good and he has a design. God made you. The reason for everything in all creation begins with the Creator. Our text earlier alluded, in, but in Romans later in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says everything comes from God alone, everything by His power, and everything for His glory. Oops, what did I do? I'm sorry. I'm pushing buttons that I don't know what to push here. Now I'm lost. God is good, amen, hallelujah, thank you Jesus, hallelujah. We're just gonna dwell on that for a moment because God is good, amen, thank you Jesus, glory to God. Here we are. The reason for our breathing, the reason we have a family, the reason that we eat, the reason that the house that you live in, the car you drive, the career you work, toenails and trees, it's all for him, everything. This is a lofty idea, right? I mean, God is creator, and everything He made is for Him and Him alone. Just Him. He made it, He created it, He has the right to use it. We really have no rights of anything. Unfortunately, we've been adopted into His family. We've been called His sons and daughters, and He has given us His inheritance, which is everything He made. That's good. That's profound. Understanding this flies in the face of anyone that rejects God's omniscience. In other words, all-knowing. The ultimate science of knowing everything, that's God. No man can know everything. Some think they do. (laughs) I've met a few. And they're usually young people. It's profound. A young teenager, they know everything. They know better than mom and dad. They know how to do everything. Right? I'm sure none of you are ever teenagers at one point you never knew everything as well, but we kinda of grew up with this idea. And when we compare it to God and knowing and knowledge, have you ever been to the beach? Me and the boys some years ago we rented this these quads and went to Lake Michigan and where my family's from and out there in um, Silver Lake there's this there's the dunes. And you've been to the dunes here, maybe down in Reedsport in Oregon and or here in Washington even, but in Oregon, they've got big sand dunes, and the dunes are just endless. Imagine the Sahara Desert and all of its sand, right? Imagine, uh, you know, just this vastness. Consider the knowledge of God being the Sahara Desert, the vastness of that amount of sand in that place. And all of creation and all of humankind's knowledge is basically one handful of what could possibly be known. There's no comparison, right? Like Francis Chan writes, if God is the ocean and my brain is the size of a soda can, what well, makes me think I can scoop him up and figure him out? That's the goodness of our, the knowledge or understanding of our God. I can tell you that there are some things that I know. In fact, I know for a fact that there is a boring Oregon. It's not a dull place. It's just named boring. But you would say, no, there's not. I'd say, well, yeah, there's a Boring Oregon. I've been there. And then you go, oh, you've been to Boring Oregon. You've experienced it. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> and you would say, well, okay then. you will go online and look up this place called Boring Oregon. Right now, people are getting out their cell phones. Boring Oregon, that's everything. The point is no one, no matter how smart, it's possible to know everything that there is to know under the sun. Mankind is still learning and discovering things. and God is all, But God already knows everything. Imagine such a God. We are not in charge. I praise God for that. Realizing your value is an issue only of authority. It has no other bearing on any other issues in life. Understanding value begins here. Charles Darwin wrote in The Origin of Species by means of natural selection and poured out his theory of evolution. In fact, in The Origin of Species and subsequent writings, of Charles Darwin did you know the lighter the skin that you have, the more you are to the original order of things? He was a progenitor for racism. The concepts that come through evolution are racist, they're sinful. But the book doesn't even address the question Origin of Species, the origin, the the real real origin or the cause of all things. In fact, Darwin wrote the book. When he wrote the book, he doubted his own theory so much he dedicated two chapters to disproving it. He said if evidence didn't come out, in in a reasonable amount of time, which is ridiculous. If they can dedicate millions of years to the development of the proteins required to make the first life, what makes him think that just in a short time after his theory comes out, that nothing else is going to come out? That's pretty moronic, actually, and arrogant. 150 years later, with no scientific evidence, nothing exists, Nothing mutates from one kind to another. They're saying, oh, the finch on the Galapagos Islands, but they don't change kinds. Their their beaks just change forms. It's still a bird. Cats don't become dogs. There are kinds. There are kinds, not species. Speciation is wide in variety, but kinds... I've never seen a person become a monkey or a monkey become a person. Although I've been called a big ape, I don't think that that has anything bearing on evolution. Now, all of these years later, listen to what he writes in his book about the eye and its complexity. He says the human eye is formed by natural selection. He builds his whole case. And he says, if, it's, if the eye was developed by natural selection, then he contemplates and he says this, it seems, I freely confess, absurd to the highest degree. In other words, why, is it, why isn't that in our textbook? Do you see, friends, the manipulation of the enemy to keep the self-image of an entire couple of generations now of not just American children, but children all across uh, the, the, the formed world to understand and believe that they came from the primordial ooze with no design or concept of a creator who cares about them and invests value in. If we insist on living and understanding and believing this, it's in all of our movies, for crying out loud. It's in every Avenger movie. It's in every Jurassic Park movie, for sure. It's in everything we watch. It's in our culture. It's what we breathe. We take it in. It's in our music. It's just nonsensical. And we've been fed this bill of lies, and what does it say to people? People born in the image of God, that God cares about, that are made in his image. The Bible says right there that he created them. If they don't believe that there's a creator that cares about them. I can see why people would be hopeless. People use all this junk to make an excuse for rejecting the authority of the creator. They don't want to believe there's a creator because they don't want to submit to the will of the one. That's the problem. The problem is about authority, it's not about truth. The big idea, again, is we can't get closer to God than our concept of him will allow. If we begin to understand that he is good, it's also true that we need to understand who we are, that we have value in, in his eyes. You have value, you're not a cosmic mistake. You are not in charge. You are created to experience a full life and joyful life. Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 says, A life devoted to, uh, devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. A God-shaped life is a flourishing tree. Just let the word soak in you. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. They are like trees planted along a river bank, with roots that reach deep into the water, such trees are not bothered by the heat, not worried by the months of drought. Their leaves stay green, and they, ha- and they go right on producing fruit, delicious fruit. That's the person who's living for the Lord, who knows the Lord. Another answer that I have is we're designed to experience God. In fact, we were created for that purpose. We have a God-shaped void inside our life, and it has to be filled with, with having an experience with him. The West Shorter Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of a man or purpose of a man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and find its purpose in him. One of the most quoted and famous world-famous atheists, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell is an interesting person, and to, and to look into the mind of this unbeliever is, is disheartening and terrible. But the reason for looking today, it, it's a deep, he has deep wounds in his life that was experienced since he was four years old. His mother died two years earlier. Um, his father died when he was four, and his mom died two years earlier. He was raised by a very eccentric Protestant grandmother and nannies, very religious. And he was very attracted to one, attached to one nanny. When he was 11 years old, he loved her, but she found another job and left, and when she left, he dove into this deep depression. Rejection is one of the biggest reasons people fall into depression. When people feel rejected, There's a couple of options. They can go and find other relational energy from elsewhere, or they can sulk into themselves and begin feelings of, I'm not good enough. Why didn't they love me? There's no one that cares. Rejection, friends, in young people, it can serve a wound that can take years to recover from. And all this is healed by by relationship with the Lord. I believe that wholeheartedly. That's why we follow Jesus. We don't stay in the molly grubs or the dumps. He pulls us out. (coughs) But Bertrand Russell went into this place of depression, so dark, in fact, that he cried and wept and was inconsolable as a child. He mocked Christians to his daughter later for constantly imagining that man somehow is important in the vast scheme of all the universe. He wrote about himself this way. This is what he writes. Listen to it. <clears throat> My most profound feelings have remained always solitary and have found in human things no companionship. The sea, the stars, the night wind in waste places mean more to me than even human beings that I love best. And I am conscious, not human affection to me at the bottom in an attempt to escape from the vain search of God. When he he goes on to write this powerful thing, one of the most quoted things by Bertrand Russell is unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. He's right. Paul says there is no other foundation that men can lay than Christ Jesus. The God-sized hole in my life can fill with a lot of stuff, but its intention is that it is filled with God. A building, a building, there's, there's no building without ground to stand on. Plans to read, material to use. All the processes for construction need to be in place. Everything has to be there. Don't forget the grumpy building inspector and the red tape. Sometimes they're grumpy. Sorry if you're a building inspector. But it's this kind of process of building that's not easy, but that God wants to be a part of with you and I. We're not in this thing alone, and we have value in, in, in the, our own foundations of self-confidence and self-strength, and build, uh, we build an image of God in ourselves that's just not real. And so our wounds are exposed. God oftentimes needs to dig deep down into roots to, to take out the things that we have put there. 2 Peter 1.3 says everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has meticulously given us by, or have been given us um, by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. To those who received him, the Bible says, who called in his name, he gave what? The rights to become the children of God. Here's the last things. I want to go over them quickly. Experiencing God gives meaning to life. Thomas Carlyle wrote, the man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder, a waif, a nothing, a no man. The greatest tragedy, friend, is not death, but life without purpose. And I'm sure you will, maybe in your life, you're suffering in some way or you know somebody that is and they don't have purpose. Their purpose has been shot down because they've been rejected in one way or another or, or wounds have come into their life and the feelings of meaningless will bring many re- seasons of despair to people that are in this way and, and such a person will experience time frames of contentment or happiness but not a steady stream of the joy of the Lord through life's trials. Experiencing God also simplifies life. Proverbs 13, 7 puts it succinctly and so clearly at one of the most important principles for following Jesus and the best peace-giving one is a simple life. It, the Bible says a pretentious and showy life is an empty life. A plain and simple life is a full life. In other words, why do we get so caught up in everything? It amazes me that we're so amazed by what's on the front page of, well, it used to be the magazine, magazines anymore, but by what's happening with the big stars, you know? oh, everybody wants to be them and have the billion dollars and, and all the things and to come to find out they still die. I got more feedback um, when we were in our series many years ago on the Ten Commandments for one sermon I preached than any other I've ever preached about the Sabbath. We don't get it. Do you want someone who's always busy but never happy You know, contentment doesn't come through busyness, work, or play. It comes from God through realized purpose. People are running around trying to get everything done, cause cause worry, fear, distress, fatigue, all of those things. Come running to the doctor for the next prescription, and they'll give you the drugs. Boy, schedule, 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 work, 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 play, play, play. The ultimate prescription comes from the great physician, the one with the nail-pierced hands, who said, I gave my life for you so you could really have rest. Experiencing God focuses my life. These things are contrary to the world's idea of self-esteem. Philippians 3.13 says, I am focusing all my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past. The past drags us down, doesn't it? Regret, worry, rejection, fears, wounds, forgetting what is behind and looking forward to what lies ahead because I'm a follower of Jesus. Friends, I think if we want to have impact, we've got to stop dabbling and focus our life on really building life the way God wants us to have it built. Stop doing the activities that are futile and do what matters. Experiencing God motivates my life unrealized purpose is like hosting a marathon here at the church, but not giving anyone specific instructions on where the course is or where the finish line is. Just go. Ready, set. We'll make up a winner at the end. 12 miles, figure it out. I'll see you never. Each one takes off, but when we know what our purpose is and our direction, and we've locked in. We've, we've rejected laziness. We're stalwart to pursuing God. We're working hard. We're loving hard. We're doing what God's called us to do. Experiencing God prepares us for eternity. I think many people spend their lives trying to create a lasting legacy on earth. And that used to be the songs we used to sing. Lord, let me leave a legacy. Some of those, I want to be a man that they would write about. You know, I don't know if you know that song or not. You probably don't, but it's okay. But we have a lot of them. And now that I like the new Mercy Me, it's been a few years ago, or um, Casting Crowns, he said, I don't care if I leave a legacy. I want them to know you. I think there's going to be enough time in heaven for legacies. I think what people fail to realize that all the achievements eventually surpassed, records are broken, Records are broken, records are done, uh, reputations fade, tributes are forgotten. The Bible says in Matthew 6, do not store for ourselves treasures where? On earth where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? I want you to make note of this, friends, that you and I store up for heaven. What? heaven is our gift for salvation yes but jesus calls us to serve him while we're in this world and he says we're given rewards for that in heaven all right we'll move along we're designed to last forever ecclesiastes 3 god has planted eternity in every human heart 2 corinthians 5 1 when this tent we live in our body here on earth is torn down, God will have a house in heaven for us to live in, a home he had made himself, which will last forever. I am so grateful that life is temporary. This life on earth is a temporary assignment. We're not made to live here forever. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, I love, I love getting on my motorcycle and riding around America. I've been a lot of places over the years. I've ridden thousands of miles, tens of thousands. And, and I love the scenery. I love the adventure. I, I love the creation that God has made here, and I appreciate it so much. I've ridden the entire coastline of the West Coast. I have ridden, uh, I've ridden the Tail of the Dragon in North South Carolina, Tennessee. I've, been, I've ridden my bike. I just love riding. And I love the scenery and I love the adventure and and all of the beautiful things and the vastness of the the loneliest highway in America. I've ridden it as fast as I could go. (laughs) Can I say that online? It just did. But the Bible says here that nothing compares with heaven. Nothing compares with eternity. Life is temporary. The psalmist says in Psalm 39, Lord, show me how brief my life here is on earth. Psalm 119, I'm here on earth just for a little while. Life is this test. And when we look at the vastness of life, if we live this life without purpose, then what's the use? What's the use if we don't understand that God loves us and has a plan for our life? What's the use of living if you believe you just came from primordial slop? And there's nothing more for you here. I'm amazed. I'm truly amazed that this is the thing that we believe.